Well, this morning I want to give a little bit of some background for kind of where we're going. You've heard the announcement that we are um, having the opportunity to have a little soup and grilled cheese uh, lunch today. Not simply to feed a hungry congregation. I mean, good golly, Baptists like to eat. Um, It's not simply for that. It's to be a uh, fundraiser for the men's shelter that's next door. And there's something through this political season. I know, listen, y'all are tired of hearing about politics. But there's something through this political season that has become perhaps more clear to me than ever before in the history of our country. And that is that the media has so portrayed that liberals are the good guys and conservatives are evil. And listen, the Bible says all kinds of things about our attitudes towards the poor, that if Christians would really live out what this book says we're supposed to, um, liberals would have nothing on conservative Bible-believing Christians. There would be no need for welfare if the churches stepped up and did the things that they were supposed to. And so here's the heart of the issue. I want to talk this morning about the danger of favoritism. I think it's appropriate as we talk about how are we supposed to carry the word throughout our life every day with us, wherever we go. We're going to talk about something that you probably have not thought about before. And that is, what is a Christian attitude towards the poor? Because the challenge is, if you're not that, you just don't think about it at all. That's what the government's for. That's what somebody else is going to do. I, I wish I could find the statistics. There are, there's a, uh, a survey that was done, some kind of research that was done by a major university that says, uh, you know, when you're standing in line at the supermarket and you have people in front of you, like you have made the mistake and you have gone at the busiest time that there is. And there's 50 people in every line. So you are in line and you're going to be there for a while. Some of you are so gregarious that you'll talk to the magazine rack holding, you know, you'll be talking to Beyonce and Kim K. I mean, you're, you're ready to just go. You're ready to talk. And, oh, girl, no, you didn't. Um, all that kind of stuff. Some of you, some of you, it doesn't matter if there's people all around you. You're just not going to talk. Research shows that in less than a half of a second, you have made a determination on whether you're going to engage in friendly banter with the person in front of you. You don't even know how you're wired but you are pre-wired to judge everyone around you and some people are worthy of your conversation and some people just aren't. Did you know that? You ever figure that out about yourself? Why do you speak to some people in line and not to others? Have you ever found yourself perhaps walking down the road and you see someone coming that maybe you don't want to run into and you find yourself crossing the road to... Now, listen, there are times where you need to be safe. If there's a gang of teenagers that are up to no good, by no means don't be a martyr and let them punk you right in front of everyone. Cross the street. But has there been a time where there's just something that's going to be a tad bit uncomfortable? Crossing the street all the time isn't a bad thing. Matter of fact, um, my daughter went with me to the Southern Baptist Convention in Indianapolis. And so we just had a wonderful opportunity for a little... Uh, mom and dad and daughter date. And so we're in downtown Indy, major convention, tens of thousands of people, and we're walking down the street in downtown Indianapolis, and there happens to be a homeless man there with his little tin cup and a couple coins in it, shaking it. Kind of sounded like a little rattle or toy. And so with the hustle and bustle of people that were around us, Marcy and I are walking, and we get about 50 steps from the guy and realize that Kylie has his cup. 
Like she thought it was a toy and he was shaking it there to get her attention. So she just walked up to him, took it from him and kept on going. We're like, what in the world did you do? You're stealing from a homeless person. And we come back and he said, I figured you guys would figure it out sooner or later. So I'm like, now I, I have to empty the entire contents of my wallet because Ky- and Kylie wanted me to make, make sure that you knew she didn't do this while she was 11. She was 10. Um, no, she, <laughs> she was about two. And so it was probably mom and dad's place. So we probably should have crossed the street at that time, and, and we didn't. When we look at the, at the book of James, James is very concerned about a practical religion. How does what you believe flesh itself out throughout the week? And in the very first chapter, the half-brother of Jesus pleads with us to be doers of the word, not just hearers. And then he drops something on us for us to do that is unbelievable. When James is dealing with problems of the Christian life, you go, this is where you're going to start? Chapter 1, verse 27, he says this, Pure and undefiled religion before a God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. What an introduction. Pure and undefiled religion. So there is impure and defiled religion that is out there. And it's religion that doesn't care for people in their distress. And the only reason you won't care for people in their distress is because you are stained by the world. Can you think of a spiritual reason to not help people out? No, you can't. Because there isn't one. And so you're like, all right, James is just getting started. And he says, I want you guys to flesh out. I want your faith to be real. And here's how you know. What do you do with orphans and widows? And you're like, James, for real? This is where you're going to start? Like, why don't you say, go to church, read your Bible. You're talking about caring for widows and orphans? And I don't think it stops there. I don't think, I, I think if I, if I could use some holy imagination that there's kind of a dot, dot, dot there. He's not just saying orphans and widows are the only two groups of people that we should care for. Chapter 2, where that break happens, shouldn't happen. It's a very unfortunate break between chapter 1, verse 27, and chapter 2, verse 1. Because in chapter 2, he begins talking about the poor. So he's talking about all kinds of people that are disadvantaged, whether they're orphans who don't have kids, or whether they're widows who don't have kids to care for them, they have no family, or whether it's the poor that are just overlooked and marginalized by society. So this is where he starts. These are the practical issues and the problems that James wants to start here. And and, and because of that unfortunate break, we think that there's something we're supposed to do over here in chapter 1 for widows and orphans, and there's something we're supposed to do over here in chapter 2 for the poor when they're all kind of congregated together. So beginning in chapter 2, he goes on to describe in greater detail why this is the place he starts. And what he wants to do is to warn us of the danger of favoritism. In verses 1 1 through 4, he actually does this. He tells us in verses 1 through 4, don't be friendly with favoritism. You've got to recognize that it exists, and you need to stay as far away from favoritism as possible. Listen to what God's Word says. My brothers, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Let me, let me stop right there and just say, as you hold on to the faith, you will find a way not to show favoritism. If you are a person that indiscriminately uh, expresses favoritism all the time, I think what James would say to you is you are not holding on to the faith of our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For example, verse 2. Let's just say that a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. 
If you look with favor on the man wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor man, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? The word for favoritism in the Greek actually means to receive a face. It means to judge something at face appearance. It implies preferring one over another because of appearance. And then he gives a hypothetical. He says there's a rich man, there's a poor man. And the idea when he says they walk into your meeting is that they come to public worship. Now, we can do a little kind of in between the lines, sanctified common sense. If they're coming to worship, what does that mean about them? They're believers. In the first century, they didn't have Pack-a-Pew Sunday and, you know, invite your neighbor to church. It was not one of those kinds of things. The implication is they they are at the very least a God-fearer and most likely believers, part of the family. But one comes in dressed really nice and one comes in just a little bit shabby. And the way that we react to them is completely based upon judging a book by its cover, by appearance. It's a hypothetical but we see some really important training for church ushers right here. How do you determine where you're going to encourage someone to sit? The best seats in the house? Or are you just going to let them kind of stand in the back? We have to remember that God says that he looks on the inside, not the outside of people. In the Old Testament, this was made very clear in the choosing of a king. You see, if you were tall, dark, and handsome, you would get picked for everything. It's kind of like the middle school playground all over again. Who gets picked to be the captain of the, the kickball team? It's the it's tall, dark, and handsome. And the pipsqueak, you know, like he's that one person left that neither team has actually picked, but your team has to take him because it's your turn to pick? Yeah, that's, that's the guy that gets excluded all the time. And so Saul is such a coward. He's hiding among the baggage. But because he's tall, dark, and handsome, he gets picked to be the king. David, when David is anointed by Samuel, David is so insignificant that his father leaves him out tending the sheep while all of the older sons are paraded before Samuel. And God tells Samuel, this isn't him. He goes down on, this isn't him, this isn't him, this isn't him. And Samuel finally scratches his head and says, do you have any other kids? I mean, God definitely told me to be here. He's like, yeah, there's the runt of the litter, David, who is so insignificant, we didn't even invite him to the party. And he comes in and God says, don't look on his outward appearance because that's not what God looks at. God looks at the inside. There's a story that's told that Jesus, when he was picking his disciples, uh, submitted the resume of his disciples to a talent agency just to see as he is putting together his team exactly how that was going to go. And he gets this uh, memorandum from this um, temp agency that says, "Um, listen, Jesus, your global empire is in a lot of trouble because none of the men that you have picked have the Um, enterprising ability to be a part of this business venture that you are proposing. Global evangelization, let's face it, Christians, our job is world domination. That is what it is. That's the Great Commission put into different language. And Jesus, these guys that you have picked, if if you were starting a fishing company, maybe they'd be doing great. And you got Matthew, so he could do the accounting, he could do the books. But like this global enterprise, none of them are public speakers. They don't have a lot of tact. They're they're trying to outdo each other for who's going to be the best, they're, they're just very limited in actually being good at what you want them to do, except for one guy. There's one guy that just shows a lot of acumen. He shows a lot of promise. He is enterprising. He is ambitious. And we recommend that you hold on to Judas as much as possible. But the other 11, get rid of them. They're no good. 
we are tempted to judge, to be friendly with favoritism, to judge a book by its cover. Let me ask this question. Is there a nice way to play favorites? Is there a nice way to say, you and not you? No, there is no nice way to show favoritism. And James even says, favoritism always expresses, here's his word, an evil judgmentalism. He says it's evil. Verse 4, haven't you discriminated amongst yourselves, rich man, poor man, coming to church, part of the family of God, and yet you are discriminating among yourselves, and you have become judges with evil thoughts. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that later, and we're going to talk about how showing favoritism breaks every single one of the Ten Commandments. And you think showing favorites is not a big deal. There's no nice way to play favorites. Beginning in verse 5, James unpacks and he gives us three reasons why favoritism is so fatal, why it's such a big deal. Look at what the scriptures say in verses 5 through 7. He says, listen, my dear brothers, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you dishonored that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you? And drag you into the courts? Don't the rich blaspheme the noble name that was pronounced over you at baptism? The very first reason that James gives why favoritism is so bad is that favoritism contradicts God's glorious character. God has chosen the weak and the poor and the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God chose them to be a part of his family. And while they might be poor in finance, they have the opportunity to be rich in faith for the simple reason that God has decided to include them in his family. God has honored them in the same way that he has honored you by giving you the ability to be a part of his family. And while God has honored them, when we show favoritism, we dishonor them and we insult our master. It's not just on this level. We're not just insulting a person. We are insulting the God who has chosen them to be a part of his family. So moms and dads, boys and girls, is it okay? This trick question, we asked you, in your family, who is your favorite? What are you going to answer? You better not answer. There will be heck to pay. You, you can't answer that question. Oh, they're all my favorite. And it just is the same in your family. You love your kids. Let's just be honest. Sometimes in spite of themselves. Did I get amen? Sometimes in spite of themselves. You love them when they obey. You love them when they don't obey. You love them when they walk the narrow path. You, you weep out of love for them when they get on the broad path that leads to destruction. You love them when they make decisions that you like that they make. You, make, you love them when they make decisions that you don't. They're in your family. And just like in your family, it's not okay to play favorites. In God's family, it is no different. Here's the point. Do not deny by your snobby actions the privileges that Christ shed his blood to give to the poor. They are included in God's family. They are saved by grace just as you are. So why treat them like second-hand citizens? Because this is a challenging word. Because you know what? I don't think about the poor every single day. 
And, and, and if I gave you a dollar for every time that you thought about the poor this week, you'd probably owe me money. Out of sight, out of mind. And the Bible's saying, don't treat people snobbily. Don't deny them privileges. They are full members of the family of God. And if he chose them, then we should choose to honor them as well because we don't want to dishonor them and we don't want to insult our Lord. Let me, uh, let me take a brief aside here. to to make sure that we understand clearly what Jesus is teaching about the rich and the poor. He is not saying that all poor people, by virtue of their poorness, make it into the kingdom of heaven. That's not true. There is no virtue in being poor. In the same way, God's blessings of riches are... are, the, The blessing of riches is no sure sign of God's blessings. You might just be a conniving, um obsessive compulsive ceo who's going to step on people to make money it's not because god necessarily has blessed you poorness and riches no sign of god's blessing there is no merit neither earns anything before god because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god poor people don't sin more or less rich people don't sin more or less however jesus does say it might be easier for poor people to make it into the kingdom of heaven because it is easier for them to cast themselves on Jesus because they have nothing else to cast themselves on. Poor people can cast their, the full weight of their reliance upon Jesus because rich people are tempted to trust in their wealth. I ain't worried. I got, I got the platinum health insurance plan. You know, he's got to worry because he's got nothing. I don't need to worry because I got a nice house. He's the one that needs to worry. We trust in our riches instead of trusting in the Lord. And so we have to remember that God is in the business of choosing the things that we would not choose. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29 says this, Brothers, consider your calling, because there are not many that are wise from a human perspective. There are not many that are powerful, not many of noble birth. But instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one can boast in his presence. Poor people aren't about boasting. They got nothing to boast about. They're willing to cast themselves where rich people might not be so willing to cast themselves upon the Lord. In this situation that James uh, paints for us, it's a poor man that walks into a congregation. At the end of chapter 1, it's an orphan and it's a widow. The point that he's making is that true religion finds a way to service those who are disadvantaged. They might be men, they might be women, they might be boys, they might be girls, they might be young, they might be old, they might be white, they might be black, they might be yellow, they might be something. But the point is that religion that honors God serves people who are disadvantaged no matter what their circumstance is. We don't say, here's the bar, jump to it and we'll help you. When we recognize that we have something that can be of benefit to others, we give because Christ has given us. Before we move on, one note of irony here. He's saying, all right, here's this hypothetical situation. Rich man comes in, poor man comes in, and you bend over backwards to help this rich guy. He's coming in, you're giving him the the priority seat, and the the poor guy you're making sit back there. And James goes, hey, hold on a second, verses 5 through 7. Isn't it the rich who exploit you? Isn't it the rich that drag you to court? Isn't it the rich who blaspheme the name of the Lord that called you? He's saying, guys, listen, you're ready to kiss up to the rich, and yet they're willing to step all over you. Why do they exploit the poor? You know, the Bible says don't, char- don't, don't lend out money at interest. 
Rich people, because they love money, are willing to lend you money at a 15% interest rate. Because they love money, they don't love you. Rich people have the ability to pay exorbitant lawyer's fees that poor people don't because I'm going to get what's mine and if you violated me, I'll take you to court to make sure I get what is mine. Poor people don't drag you to court. Poor people don't exploit you. They don't have the time to do it. They're trying to survive. And he's saying, guys, listen, pay attention. You're so willing to covet the favor of rich people and they're the ones that actually oppress you and the poor people will actually be pretty gentle. But the rich people, they'll be glad to step on you as they're climbing that corporate ladder. So he says, our favoritism contradicts God's character. He gives a second point in verses 8 through 11. The second reason favoritism is so bad is that favoritism goes against God's highest law of love. God's highest law of love. Look at verses 8 through 11 with me. He says, indeed, if you keep the royal law prescribed in the scriptures... Love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show favoritism, you have sinned and you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. For whoever keeps the entire law yet fails in one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you're a lawbreaker. I don't know why when we talk about righteousness, people like, you know, I'm an all right person. I never killed nobody. He's saying, all right, so congratulations, you're not an adulterer. You're a murderer. So it doesn't matter what you, virtue you think you've won by keeping the law in this here. You don't get to pick and choose. So what James is saying here is not only is favoritism incongruent with God's character, it's just plain wrong and mean-spirited. It's, not, it's, it's unloving. You feel like James is speaking to kids now, saying, guys, don't do this. Don't show favorites. You're supposed to be merciful. You're supposed to be kind. You're supposed to be loving. And the Old Testament makes it clear. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not a New Testament principle. That goes all the way back to when God first gave the law. Love your neighbor. Jesus just ups the ante quite a bit. He says, love your... What does Jesus say? Who are you supposed to love? Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. It's not just love your neighbor. Love your enemy. How can you do that apart from the Spirit of God? I don't know. Because you know what? I'm, I'm pretty content to not love my enemies. You know, you're going to say bad things about me. You're going to run me over. You're going to stab me in the back. I'm going to love. When I'm in the flesh, it doesn't happen. When I'm in the spirit, it can. And it can happen for you too. The law of love is called the royal law because it is, it is the arch principle. Jesus loved. That's why he gave. And this law of love governs all the other laws. And James is saying that any way that you break the law is sin. You're proud of not being an adulterer, but you, you've murdered, you've broken a law. You are guilty of all it. So the best illustration that I can think of, okay? How many links in a chain have to break before the chain is broken? I mean, you're going to tow your boat with a chain that's missing a link? I don't think so. How many, how many chains, how many links have to break before the chain is broke? Just one. He's saying that God's law is united. It's not, it's not just, you know, pick and choose and do this. If you break one, you break them all. In the same sense, what he's saying here is that there are no little sins. Many times we go, well, you know, I've done more good than I've done bad. You ever had this conversation with yourself? Yeah, it's New Year's. You're like, well, you know, I did all this good stuff. and Man, I really screwed up here. But you know what? You know, kind of on the whole, I'm all right. I'm good. All right. 
That's not, the Bible says, no, 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 you can't do that. Partial obedience is actual disobedience. Hey, you, you walk a tightrope, okay? I, 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 anybody here scared of heights? Like, I can watch a video of somebody walking a trapeze and my, oh, oh, hair on my neck standing up. This is not good. Do you want to partially fall off a tightrope? No. Because a partial fall of a tightrope is a fatal flaw of a tightrope. There are no little sins. We don't grade ourselves on a curve. As a matter of fact, I, I do believe that even in the simple act of showing favoritism, we have the potential to break every single one of the Ten Commandments. You know, the, the, the deal is, we don't think favoritism is a big deal. We go, so what? I overlooked an insignificant person. Sue me. I'm, I'm looking out for my family. I'm looking out for my church family. I'm doing this, I'm doing that. So I didn't pay attention to them. I didn't, it's not like I did anything bad. I just overlooked them. Big deal. Actually, it is. Commandment number 10. Commandment not to covet. When we show favoritism, we are coveting because we are preferring the riches, uh, preferring the rich and coveting their riches. Oh, could you imagine if they came to our church and they tithe? Nobody says that about a poor person. They'll say that about a rich person. So you break the commandment against coveting. Commandment number nine about bearing false witness. We bear false witness because we imply that the poor man has less worth than the rich man. We have borne false witness. Both are made in the image of God. Both are redeemed by his priceless blood. One is not worth more than another. And when we imply that they are, we're bearing false witness. Number eight, commandment number eight is about stealing. Well, we rob the poor of the dignity they deserve as a creation of our God and a redemption by his son. Commandment seven, talking about adultery. When we favor the rich, we are being unfaithful to the bond of Christian fellowship. There is no uh, division that we are to recognize when we are here. It doesn't matter what small group you're in, what, what decade you were born in, um, what your background is. We are all one family. Commandment number six, the commandment against murder. We kill the spirit of the poor by demeaning them when we play favorites. Commandment number five, to honor your parents. We dishonor the poor when that commandment makes very clear that we are to give honor to all who deserve it and the poor do because they are made in God's image. Commandment four about the Lord's Day. We defile the Lord's Day when we show favorites in his house. Commandment number three. uh, We're talking about believers representing God by, by our favoritism. We misrepresent God. Commandments number one and two. All disobedience is a denial of Jesus's lordship. So you think favoritism is just a little sin. And yet by that simple in what you think meaningless act, you are denying all of God's law, like a, like a sheet of glass. It doesn't matter how small the pebble or how insignificant you think your brick is, when you throw it against that glass and you break it, you have broken all of it, not just a part of it. You're not going to super glue it back together. You can't pick and choose which laws you will follow. Third and finally, our fourth point, but our third and final reason that James gives for why favoritism is so bad James encourages us in verses 11 and 12 to live mercifully in the light of our future judgment. To live mercifully in light of our future judgment. Verses 12 and 13. Speak and act as those who will be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. We know and we rejoice in the fact that mercy triumphs over judgment. He says here that we have a law of liberty. 
You know what he's saying? This is my own paraphrase, so I hope it's right. Um, you don't need to pray and ask God for permission to do the right thing. Oh, there's a homeless man. God, should I help him? Yes, don't even, don't even waste the time praying for it. You know that he wants you to show mercy. It is the law of liberty. You don't need permission to do good. It is the liberty to do good. Now, you have the liberty to not do good. You want to use that liberty? God has given you the ability to obey him and to show love to others. And this is all throughout the scriptures. Deuteronomy 15.11 says this, For there will never cease to be poor people in the land. That is why I'm commanding you, you must willingly open your hand to your afflicted and poor brother in your land. Who are we supposed to do good to? Who are we supposed to do good good to? Everyone. But the Bible says we're especially supposed to do good for those who are of the household of faith. Let me just assert, you love your kid differently than you love someone else's kid. And you should go to jail if you try to love someone's kid the way you love your kid. I mean, that, that distinction is okay. In the same way, we are to love our family. We're especially to take care of the Christian poor in a special way. But that doesn't mitigate, that doesn't mean we're not supposed to do good to the unchristian poor. The Bible says that all men will know we are his disciples by our love. Especially for disciples, our love for one another, but our love for all of humanity. So God has to command us, open your hand to your brother, to the needy and the poor in your land. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. God says, for I desire mercy. Giving to people with a generosity, a love, a mercy, and I don't want your sacrifice. You know, hey man, did you see the size of that ox I brought to church, man? I think that's the biggest tithe we got all week. And he says, I don't care about your sacrifice. I care about your obedience. Are you living out the law of love? You're going to be judged against us. How are you doing? He desires your loyalty, your love, your mercy, and not your sacrifice. He wants your sacrifice, but if your sacrifice is a cover-up for you not living out what you say you believe, then forget the sacrifice. Get your life right, and then you can get the sacrifice right. It doesn't make sense to obey God for five minutes and then deny him for the rest of the week. Finally, Micah 6, 8. The scriptures say, Mankind, he has told you what is good and what it is that the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God, to act justly, to love faithfulness, to walk humbly with your God, to act justly, to show mercy to people. You see, I think the usual treatment is to just not think about it. You say, you know what, that's what the government's for, that's what somebody else is for. That is somebody, that's somebody else's problem. I just don't feel called, Lord. Well, let the people who feel called do that. James would say it's not a calling. It's charity. Not charity as in a nonprofit. It's love in action. You, you don't need a mission statement to be kind. It is what Christians do. It is what pure and undefiled religion does. It gives to people that have things that you need. It, it's probably collecting dust in your own house. God has given you more than what you need. So avoid the usual treatment. Find a way to not do them ill and find ways proactively to do them benefit. Because he says it is a contradiction 
for us to have an unmerciful attitude when we profess that we are so grateful for the mercy that He's shown us in Christ. Here's here's the kicker, and I hope I hope that um, <clears throat> I hope that when our service is done, I hope that every single one of you join us for the lunch. If not, I hope it's raining really hard when the service gets over and you get soaking wet on the way to the car. Here's here's the kicker, okay? Um, man, and this is it. I hope that this drives the point home. It will be very easy for you to put a few dollars in the plate to help homeless people and not put your heart in it. It's easy to be merciful. It's something completely different to actually love them. And yet in the very most famous chapter in the Bible on love, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul uses the poor specifically as a um, vice, as a fulcrum to talk about our act of love. Look at what it says in 1 Corinthians 13. He says, if I donate everything I have to feed the poor. Who's his illustration? The poor. If I donate everything that I have to feed the poor, and if I give my body up in martyrdom in order to boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. You might get a charitable deduction at the end of the year for your monetary gift, but congratulations, that'll be the only reward that you get. It won't go down in the Lamb's Book of Life because it's not truly an act of love. It's a, if you're doing it for the tax deduction, you're doing it to love yourself more than you're doing it to love someone else. And so he concludes this whole thing saying, guys, there's a judgment that's coming. Live mercifully in light of that judgment. You have received mercy, give it. He says, guys, God's highest law is love. So just do what is loving. He says, God has been gracious in his character in choosing you, and God has sovereignly chosen to choose people that you would not have picked to be on your team. You don't get to pick. You're not God. He is. Your job is to love them. Tells us this morning that there's a grave, grave danger in showing favoritism. And there's nothing wrong with loving the people that are your soulmate friends. But when that comes a point that you are exclusive of other people and you are playing favorites, you are sinning and you are not honoring the Lord who has bought you with his blood and commanded you to demonstrate the glory of salvation in Christ by showing that love to a lost and dying world. May God give us the grace to demonstrate how much we love him. Pray with me, please. Father, I thank you for this church and I thank you for men and women in this church that have shown me uh, been great examples of charity and mercifulness. Men and women who truly live out the spirit of this passage. And uh, if there is anyone that is challenged by this passage, first and foremost, it is me. Uh, I am ashamed to admit how little maybe I think about my responsibility to the poor. But I am so grateful for a church that wants to stand on every article of your scriptures that um, with great passion supports the ministry that we are supporting here this afternoon. And I pray for all of us that you put within us a charity, a mercifulness that goes above and beyond, that demonstrates our gratitude to you, not in what we keep, but in what we give. 
We thank you for the many ways that you have blessed us, our individual families, our faith family. Indeed, Lord, we are bountifully blessed. And we pray that we will honor those blessings that you have shed upon us, not so that we can perpetuate the blessings, but that we can pass it on to others who need to see your mercy. And they need to see it through your people. We know that God is merciful. The question is whether your people will be. So, Father, today, prick our hearts, assault our conscience, and help us to bend our knee and worship before you, the merciful God, in whose name we pray. Amen.